Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scors and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. Hope everybody is doing great. Today's episode is about a very important topic, and that is the climate emergency, the climate crisis, and getting young people around the world at colleges and universities on a career trajectory that tackles the climate crisis. And my guest today will be Eben Goodstein. He is a faculty member at Bard College in New York, where he also directs the Center for Environmental Policy and the Bard MBA in Sustainability. Eben and I have uh, conversed a bunch in, over the years. Uh, he's a colleague of mine. He was actually on a former uh, podcast with Hunter Lovins talking about the solar dominance hypothesis. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, as well as a link to what we're going to talk about today which is the Solve Climate by 2030 teaching that he is helping to organize, which is going to be taking place in March 2022. And uh, just really good stuff, you know, to take action and to get stuff done now in this short window when we can really have the opportunity to mitigate the worst impacts of the climate emergency if we act soon. So uh, that's, I think, sufficient intro. It's best to just hear from the source. Um, so without further ado, uh, we'll get into our, my interview with Eben right now. So hi, everybody. I'm with Eben Goodstein, and he is here to talk about the Solve Climate by 2030 exciting program that he is helping to launch and really kind of chair and uh, really excited about this because, as, as most of you know, climate is my bread and butter as well. And so, even uh, great to see you. Welcome to you. Uh, <laughs> glad, to, glad to be here, Jason. Awesome, awesome. So let's just jump right in here and just ask: Could you outline your vision for Solve Climate by 2030 and how the program came to be? Yeah, um, Solve Climate is calling for a worldwide teach-in on climate injustice set for March. 30th, 2022. Um, and we're really tapping into the, the fear, the concern, the worry that um, educators have all around the world, um, as well as students um, and just people. I mean, folks who are paying attention get it um, and they see that climate impacts are accelerating, that it's been you know nightmare conditions for many people. Um, and they're worried about the future and they want to do something. Uh, they want to do something that actually matters um, and that can uh, really help build the movement ultimately that we have to build to drive the change to, you know, slow climate down, stabilize it uh, and figure out how we're going to live with it and through it. Um, and so that's what the teaching is. It's, it's really a way to get beyond the 20 or 30 students who will show up for a climate related event and engage hundreds of students at every campus that wants to participate. And that's, we hope well over a thousand this year um, in serious dialogue about what we can do in our own communities, um, on our own campuses to turn the tide against climate change, 
Um, uh, but beyond that, sort of, you know, in our lives, uh, because we're not going to win this, you know, in six months or a year, it's going to be part of what we're doing for the next 20, 30, 50, 70, 100 years. Um, and so we're really trying to give students a sense of, of agency that they're living at an extraordinary moment in, in human history where what they do really matters in a way that it really never has for any other generation before them. Yeah, yeah, I, I really try to, uh, and, you know, get that through to my students every, every new class. Um, so we're on the same page there. Uh, I think in some ways you maybe have already addressed my second question here, but, you know, 2030 is a quite ambitious you know, target for solving the climate crisis. So, so why, why 2030? What's uh, wh where's that number come from? Well, we were looking for sort of a name to think about what we were doing. Um, uh, this is a project that's been underway for a couple of years with support from the Open Society University Network, um, and and really, it's it's focused on collaborative climate education. So, how do we engage climate concerned faculty, students, staff around the world in this project? And the message that we want to engage students with is really a sense of realistic optimism about how much can get done in the next nine years. You know, the title was originally sparked by the 2018 IPCC report that said we had until that period of time to act aggressively to hit the 1.5 degree C target. Um, and it's a good time frame because the world has really shifted in the last four or five years um, as we cross these technology tipping points um, uh, with the price of battery storage, solar power, wind power, uh, electric vehicles, all declining rapidly and continuing along that trajectory, right? So uh, solving climate, at least in terms of the energy half, um, is really within our grasp. I don't think there's any question about that. And we could get a lot done in the next eight or nine years to really be well on the way to solving that, that particular part of the problem. Uh, because it's not an economic problem anymore, it's not a technology problem anymore, it's a deployment issue, right? How do we build out at scale and flip at scale an infrastructure that's been in place for 120 years? And that is now not only destroying the planet, but is also costing us more money than the alternative. Um, so that's really the vision, is that we could be well on our way towards solving the energy half of climate change by 2030. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, it's in line with a lot of the stuff we're seeing in the U.S. now, all these you know, 30 by 30 commitments, et cetera. So, so I, I get that. And, um, you know, I, I kind of back to the kind of messaging here for a moment, you know, a colleague of mine recently noted that we should stop using terms like climate change and global warming and only refer to the issue as the climate crisis or emergency, you know, given the gravity of the situation. And I think that makes sense to me. I'm actually trying in my own, you know, daily life to not refer to climate change, to just use that, you know, that emergency language. What, what do you think of that framing? You know, I think it's right. Um, I wrote a book, back in 2006, uh, where I decided to use the word global heating, because I thought that that was a better framing than global warming. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, whatever we can do to sort of underline the fact that we need to kind of wake up to the moment, I think is very good. But I think the challenge is that it's a long emergency, right? The emergency language sort of seems to say, well, we just do something and we get through the emergency, but we're not going to um, in any short time frame. 
And so I think the, the, the challenge for people is to think about, okay, how do I act in the context of an emergency when I, I don't, can't put my life on hold and deal with it, right? I've got to live my life. Um, but what you have to do really is find the opportunities, the high leverage opportunities to put energy into those to help resolve the emergency. Um, you know, uh, and, and so it, 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 the, the danger of that emergency language is that it, um, none of us are like living that way, right? Even those of us who are saying it's a climate emergency are still going about our daily lives, um, you know, making commitments and, and working hard, but um, it's a, I don't know, it's it, the metaphor is challenging in some ways, but I yeah. think it's the right, directionally, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, no, I, you make a good point there about kind of the t- that emergencies tend not to be decadal, you know, or centuries <laughs> long, right? There's a kind of a temporal co- quality to emergencies that climate doesn't neatly fit into. But I guess we're just going to be, you know, uh, faced with semantic problems, no matter which way we, we approach it. So I think up for the rest of our conversation, I'm going to go with emergency or crisis, and we'll uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll figure out the, the middle ground here. Um, so so the, moving on here, you know, one of the perennial problems with the modern environmental movement is the belief that's really been kind of embedded in our thinking is that better information will lead to action and change, right? Uh, If we just give people the facts and the information, you know, we'll get the the outputs we and the outcomes we want. And we know now that that's not true, that behavior change is not that simple. So how are your efforts going to really focus on action and tangible impacts, not just increased awareness of this emergency? You know, um, in my graduate programs at Bard, I, I talk about there's sort of three ways that you can change the world in my mind. Um, and one is policy, and, and that's about getting out there and changing the rules um, uh, legislatively and within companies. Another way is actually changing the game, right? Because no matter how many rules you change, business has got to figure out how to get food on the table, keep the lights on. Education is about changing minds, right? So those are the three levers that we have. This worldwide teaching is an education project. There's no doubt about that. We're really trying to um, engage uh, way more young people um, in, uh, in building a sense of agency, right? In sort of awakening them to the possibilities of the kind of work that we, they can do. But at every one of these teach-ins, the last hour is dedicated to what can we do, Right. So it's not education, it's not just here's science education, it's like here's science education or some, but it's mostly about, okay, collectively we get this. I mean, young people understand the basics of climate science. What are we supposed to do? Because it's such a big problem and despair seems to be the common reaction. How do we move beyond that? And that can be as political actors, as voters, as citizens, but it can also be as building a job around this, building a career around this. And that's not just for solar installers and people who are weatherizing, but it's for artists and, you know, engineers and business folks and scientists, um, uh, literature majors, you know, anybody can find a way to work on climate um, professionally as a volunteer, um, as a citizen. And that's kind of the direction that these teach-ins are supposed to go and we want to leave it. Great, great. Well, I mean, I think certainly motivating students to tackle the climate crisis, you know, in their careers seems like a very worthwhile endeavor. 
and this kind of interdisciplinary approach that you're taking seems very sound, you know, because we obviously need people from all fields and walks of life. So, you know, as environmentalists, we've often had a hard time saying yes to things, and your approach certainly seems more of kind of an affirmative messaging. So my question here is, what are you hearing from students about the climate emergency and how it's shaping their career goals and trajectories? Well, I had the good fortune, as do you, of, of working with people who um, want to do that, right? Our students are, are folks who have self-selected into that space. Um, and it's a great place to be, right? Because there's so much creativity. Um, there's so many avenues. There's so many pathways. You can just look at your graduates or mine and just see how they're you know, doing the world, changing the world in those ways through education, through policy, through business. Um, and um, what we've done um, uh, through the project um, is really one of the things we're, we're basically trying to do is, is, is a call for a hashtag make climate a class, right? So that students, you know, who are climate activists or care about climate change, a very simple thing they can do that's very effective is the beginning of every semester, introduce themselves to their professor and say, hey, could you take an hour and talk about climate change in my psychology class or my art class or my marketing class or my music class? Um, and, uh, and that's a good way, right? Because if you do that, then suddenly these professors are talking to hundreds of other students about, well, yes, as a psychologist, we do think about climate change, or as an artist, we do that, or as a musician, we do that. Um, so um, really helping people become, uh, you know, open to the idea that whatever they're doing, they can be doing climate work is part of what we're about. Yeah, um, that's Sorry, sorry. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah, well, that's, you know, it just made me think because, you know, in my school, which again, an international policy school, we've been relatively effective at, at doing what you're, you're, you know, you're laying out there in terms of, I think a lot of our security folks are getting the climate connection. And I've been very pleased to hear that in classes that are much, typically much more traditional kind of weapons of mass destruction, anti-terrorism, et cetera, um, they're talking about, you know, the security risks of, of, of climate, the climate emergency, et cetera. But I feel like we still are really behind in a lot of the other programs, whether it's the trade program or the Masters of Public Administration or the education management. Yeah. And I think your suggestion is a really good one. And I, I'm, I'm kind of curious how it might play out in my own you know, academic context here. So, so I really like that. Um, all right. Well, moving on to something specific to U.S. and then we'll branch back out a little is you know, the, the reality, I, I study U.S. politics very closely. The, the reality for climate action in the U.S. is if you want climate action, you need to elect more and better Democrats. It's really that sim simple, right? The GOP is fully captured by fossil fuel interests and the far right. And even, sadly, a few Democrats, uh, Joe Manchin, if you're listening, yeah. are in bed with fossil fuels interests, and even though their numbers are relatively small, right? The overwhelming majority of Democrats are, are in favor of strong climate policy. So if we look out at the state legislators, legislatures in states controlled by Democratic governors, um, we've seen great climate bills, California, uh, New York, Virginia, Illinois, Washington, Oregon, Colorado. And now at the federal level, even with Joe Manchin threatening to derail a lot of the most ambitious stuff, we'll probably get some pretty strong climate stuff in, in whatever bill to be passed, but with zero GOP support. So my question for you is, in America, climate action is partisan. It's just a reality. And how do your efforts grapple with this unfortunate but essential fact? 
Um, this has been an issue, you know, going back to, well, really to the 90s. Um, uh, and, and the U.S. has really passed no climate legislation at the federal level of substance in 30 years. Um, and, and it's been this partisan warfare that, you know, is now deeply, deeply entrenched. We've lost all, you know, the Republican Party has lost the, the vestiges of that bipartisan tradition. Um, actually, in 2010, that was the last time that a Romney or a McCain even talked about uh, climate policy. Um, and uh, so for my mind, you know, I think that Absolutely, politics is at the heart of this. The title of the book I wrote back in the George Bush days was um, Fighting for Love in the Century of Extinction, How Passion and Politics Can Stop Global Warming. And there is no question that policy is kind of foundational, sort of changing the rules. If you think about even business success like Tesla, right? Tesla is around because they got a loan guarantee from the Obama administration, right? So policy really shapes the direction um, that we move. That said, I don't think we need to be as discouraged as we might have been five or 10 years ago by the partisan gridlock in Washington, DC. A, as you said, we've managed to break through it, so we'll get some good stuff in the next year or two. Um, but also we've crossed this technology tipping point. Um, if you think about it, much of the last 20 or 25 years about sort of international and national policy is how do we raise the cost of, of dirty, coal and oil with you know, cap and trade systems or taxes or something to make renewable energy more competitive. Well, renewable energy has kind of snuck up on us and gotten more competitive you know, as a consequence of subsidy policy and other issues. So you know, we cross these tipping points where batteries, wind, solar, all that stuff is cheap and getting cheaper and is gonna keep getting cheaper. So what that means is that the politics really now has gotten more local what that is really going to determine climate change, right? So it's really the obstacles at the city and state level to deployment that matter more than what Washington DC does in terms of a carbon tax or cap and trade policy um, to driving solutions. So if you can elect progressives in your city, even if you live in a red state, you know, a Nashville in a Tennessee, you can get a lot done um, in terms of contributing to the revolution um, in energy that's ongoing right now. So um, I think we don't need to despair about sort of the national gridlock because the way this is gonna work is that progressive jurisdictions, blue jurisdictions are gonna pass great legislation um, and they're gonna drive this energy transition and they're gonna be economic powerhouses as a consequence. And the rest of the world, uh, our red jurisdictions will follow. Here in New York, we committed to building 10 gigawatts of offshore wind. That's, that's about six nuclear power plants. This is a massive job engine. It's gonna be creating incredible amounts of trade jobs, blue collar jobs, um, and really revitalize the whole Northeastern um, uh, kind of industrial manufacturing infrastructure. Um, and it's exciting, right? It's also gonna deliver very low cost power um, that is going to also provide the foundation for kind of next generation economic vitality. So, you know, there, there is kind of a, a, a positive uh, uh, race to the top happening uh, through this combination of, of, of progressive jurisdictions that are, you know, pretty big, some of them, um, some are smaller, but that can sort of enable 
the penetration of these technologies and, and facilitate this revolution that has to happen in the next five or six or seven years by 2030. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I think in some ways you, you're, you're amplifying my point in the sense that even in the kind of redder states, we just we can we can carve out some progressive policy within those. Of course, we have Ohio and Wyoming, you know, trying to subsidize coal and dirty plants and keep them in business for decades more. And so it'll be a, it'll be a continued fight. But I, I do share your optimism that the economics of this will ultimately kind of steamroll the opposition um, when it just becomes you know insane to keep the dirty stuff that's more expensive. Uh, but we, we will see how long fossil fuel interest in those states prevail. Um, um, you know, moving on here, you know, talking kind of more about you know, fields and disciplines, you know, we know that solving the climate emergency requires systemic change and systemic change at scale. So I'm just curious, you know, what disciplines or careers do you see the most promise in areas that may not be immediately obvious to most people or where potential for impact has been relatively untapped to date? You know, I get that question a lot from students, you know, which, where should I go? And what, and my, my general answer, and this is sidestepping your question a bit is, you know, we need people everywhere. So do what you're passionate about, but bring a climate lens to bear. So we need rabbis and preachers and pastors and imams, you know, and we need artists and communication people. And, you know, we need politicians and we need engineers and solar installers. And so there's a whole landscape of work that could happen. Um, if I had to pick out, you know, I, I think that, you know, ultimately, if you've got the appetite for it and you've got the, um, the talent, then going into politics, I think is probably the most powerful route that you can pursue. Um, and that is a tough life. I mean, and I, I wouldn't wish it on very many people, but if you're good at it um, and, you know, uh, it's probably the most effective way that you can drive change is to become, you know, the mayor of a town or city, senator, you know, uh, I would urge people to consider that a city councilor, you know, yeah. any, any person who can sort of get to the levers of, of either state, regional, local power and drive policy change. That's what I would say. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I've been basically telling my students the same thing. And I'll, I'll put it on the air in, you know, for, for posterity here that I am willing to be a major donor to any any young students who uh, run for office with a progressive climate platform and, and help them generate sufficient funds to run their campaign. So uh, you, can, you can hold me to that, um, including your students uh, even. So uh, if, if you've got a real promising student who's going to run in a tough district in New York, let me know and I'll do my best for them. Um, all right. Well, great. Um, since your work is international, um, I'm curious, are there regions of the world where you've been surprised at either the kind of intensity of the climate kind of uh, movement or, or, or the opposite, the lack of engagement? And, and, you know, where do you think are the places that are generating the most leadership, vision and action, you know, in, in when looking out at the wider world? You know, what we've been doing the last couple of years during COVID is this coordinated climate education where we've been working with Last year, we helped uh, organize um, webinars in 110 universities around the world, um, almost every U.S. state in about 40 countries. Um, and, you know, we saw kind of amazing participation levels in Colombia, um, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, where, you know, we would get 40 or 50 people to attend a webinar in Iowa 
and we would get a thousand uh, participating wow. in uh, in Colombia or in in the Philippines. So um, the world is you know wired in such a way now that it's really interesting to see uh, how climate leadership is dispersed and. Um, uh, so, so, so there were definitely some surprises to me. Um, uh, we've got a great partner down in Colombia, Los Andes University, who are, are organizing for us there and, and really have a very strong regional connection among colleagues at universities throughout Latin America and South America, um, and a similar network on the Asia Pacific Research Universities. Um, so hubs here and there, this climate concern is truly global. Um, especially among, you know, folks who have the opportunity to step back and think about the world a little bit. And that includes university faculty and staff and frankly, high school teachers as well. So the pool of educators, I think, is a very powerful and underutilized resource in the climate movement because educators, they need to have a way to engage as educators. They can't be political typically in their roles. Um, So that's kind of what we're doing with the worldwide teach-in is trying to reach out and grab those people and say, we know you care about climate change. Here's a way that you can uh, relatively easily, because you got to provide people, you know, a, a roadmap. Here, here's, you know, something that will take five, 10 hours to do, and that will bring 300 of your students together and 30 of your colleagues. And that can lay the seeds for deeper engagement over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's our theory of change, right? Is that there's this untapped, sort of resource of, of educators who get climate change or worried about it. And if we can provide them with a mechanism to engage, as we saw in, in you know, where a thousand people are showing up to these webinars, then, then it works. Um, and so that's the way we're building this teach-in. Let me just say it's worldwideteachin.org. Um, we've got information sessions the first Wednesday of every month. Um, we're always glad to do one-on-one conversations with people about this. It's really targeted universities, high schools, but also faith communities. Um, and teach-in is kind of the idea. It's really discussion-oriented. We've had ch- interesting challenges translating that word into Chinese we, uh, and French. Um, so, uh, but, but that's the vision. Um, and we welcome participation. We're trying to get a thousand college, universities, high schools engaged in March and then build towards an annual day that, that creates this sort of engagement and energy. That's great. Well, I'll definitely get my two campuses if they're not already signed up, uh, engaged. Um, so, and we'll, I'll use this podcast interview as kind of the, the, and the starting off point for that. Um, and so I just, you know, before we wrap up here, is there anything, you know, that you wanted to, to mention that, that we hadn't, you know, touched on yet? Well, I think also just along those lines, Trying to do organizing in this day and age is interesting, right? Because there are so many things. There's climate this and do that and, you know, give to that and this emergency and that crisis. And so people are really overwhelmed. Um, And so how do we get the word out about this particular event? And why do we think it's what you should devote your attention to? So I think as, as sort of organizers these days, we have to think, how do we give people opportunities that are that are effective, that really generate, you know, impact, right? Um, that are relatively easy to do because people have so many commitments. Um, but that's all. They're also fun. I mean, they're 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 um, you know emotionally engaging. Um, uh, and 
Uh, and th that to me is kind of the secret. And we deliver that. But in order to get people to even hear it, it's kind of old fashioned organizing. So I need to ask you, Jason, to like personally grab five of your friends, like by the collar or the virtual collar, if you will, and say, look, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff in your life, but you must go to this information session on November 3rd, Wednesday. Um, you know, I'm going to insist, right? I know you care about climate change. You must go to this information session, listen for half an hour and see if you get engaged because that's the key, right? Uh, it's very difficult to break through and message in this context. And it really does rely on one-on-one -on -one communication ultimately uh, even though we have the capability to touch millions of people, essentially, with social media and emails, it doesn't get us anywhere unless we yeah. go back to good old fashioned. You have to do this. Come join. Get engaged. And I think that's a, a key lesson for me these days. Yeah, well, that, that's an optimistic take for me because I'm old school and I'm, I don't like email and social media and all that stuff that much. So the fact that something relies on kind of word of mouth and one-on-one, -on -one, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a plus in my, in my book for sure. Um, and I will definitely carry that forward to, to my network. And again, I'll use, I'll send this podcast link out to people and I'll get people in my, uh, in my university college environment engaged for sure. Um, so even, hey, this has been a great conversation. Um, we look forward to seeing how this develops and participating in March. And uh, absolutely good luck with uh, exceeding your, your target of 1,000 campuses. Pleasure, Jason. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed that interview and discussion with Eben. Uh, the antidote for today is very simple. It is to go to www worldwideteachin.org and that's all one word and it's teach in i n not teaching so worldwideteachin.org and sign up get your university your college signed up for this march 2022 event and uh, if you are not a college student uh, you know do something for the climate emergency vow to only vote for climate hawk candidates Donate money to the Environmental Voter Project. Cut down on your meat and animal product consumption. Go and look into that electric car. Take action, right? That is the key right now in this moment in history. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Take care. Stay safe.